Hey guys, welcome back to Theology and Reality. This is our second episode covering the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception in our penultimate episode before we get to Lent 2023. So thanks for coming back. Last week we left off covering the various feast days around the Immaculate Conception that began to pop up in the Middle Ages. So now, the real issue is wondering exactly what we mean when we talk about the Immaculate Conception and how the doctrine evolved and developed and what the various ways that it was objected to and agreed upon, all of those things. So that's what we're going to dive into now. So on the one hand, One of the problems facing the idea of the reality of the Immaculate Conception is how the grace of Christ, which is the source of all salvation, could be applied before the work of the Passion. Now, on the one hand, there's never been any problem uh, talking about Christ's merits being applied by way of anticipation to the Old Testament patriarchs, for instance. Um, even John the Baptist, for instance, is traditionally thought to have been sanctified in the womb, obviously temporarily prior to the events of the passion. And we talk all the time about how the grace of Christ is accessible to the patriarchs by way of anticipation, right? Abraham, for instance, is saved by faith. Right. What was his faith in? Well, his faith is in the promise, the promise that is yet to come. The issue here is how Christ's merits can be applied in such a way for Mary to never contract sin in the first place. So, in other words, how can you be lifted out of a hole into which you have not yet fallen? Right? That's kind of the question. So, one can only be redeemed from a negative state of affairs. So. If we want to be able to preserve being able to say, Mary too is redeemed, and you can only be redeemed from a negative state, then how can we say that she never existed in a negative state? It seems kind of like, it seems contradictory. So the majority of the scholastics, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, etc., they would grant the state of immaculism, so being without stain to Mary, they, they would say that that's the status of a pious opinion, but not one that should be preferred, right? So in the 13th century, for instance, the idea of the Immaculate Conception is popular among a minority of theologians, but it's not something that's held for sure by a majority of them. So if we look at those who do, however, what are the reasons that they hold this? There's there's typically at least four different reasons. The first is by analogy. So in other words, if certain figures were granted even uh, sanctification, if they were granted sanctification even before they were born, like John the Baptist or Jeremiah, for instance, then wouldn't Mary's sanctification have to be at least similar, if not greater? Right? Number two, second, uh, by fittingness. So in other words, you know, what could be more fitting for a divine son than to honor his mother with the greatest gift he could give her? Third, 
by the rule of faith. So Mary is specifically predestined from all eternity to be the mother of God. We know this. So if the purpose of the incarnation is redemption from sin, then this would seem to be very fitting. And finally, fourth, the various uh, various places of biblical data, both um, literally and, of course, spiritually. So if we look at Genesis 3, we read about the serpent's head being crushed by Mary's seed. Luke 1, Gabriel speaking the new name for Mary. We, we went over this many episodes ago in that Greek term for full of grace. And finally, the spiritual interpretation of the Song of Songs, right, where we read about the Immaculate Bride of the King. So what about these various issues that we run up against in attempting to understand this or, or how, how we would struggle to see this as true? What are, what are the issues involved? So the objection is not really the concept of how a soul could be preserved from original sin. Most, you know, most theologians worth their salt will agree that this is something that God could do, right? If God is omnipotent, then it's certainly something he could do. I mean, scripture itself tells us about Adam and Eve, right? Who are created without original sins. This is not something that God can't do, right? Rather, the objections are directed against the purity of the carnal conception or against the sanctification of the flesh that precedes what the scholastics would call the quickening, where the rational soul would be infused. So the scholastics were working with essentially an Aristotelian biology, where it's 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 kind of an interesting thing. Right? Our our modern biological technology and science has actually granted us a much greater understanding of the beginnings of human life, which is really interesting. And so typically we talk about life beginning at conception and we think about the rational human soul being infused by God at the very moment of conception. Working with an Aristotelian biology, which was admittedly less developed, the scholastics were working under the impression that the human soul is not infused directly at conception, and that kind of took a few weeks for the male and female matter to combine. And then after probably right around what we would call right around the start of the second trimester, right after, you know, 75 to to 90 days or so, two or three months, then quickening occurs, which would be the infusion of the rational soul. So the objection that the scholastics have against something like the Immaculate Conception is not against its possibility or even its fittingness, but it was really against the idea that there would be a rational soul present right from the moment of conception that actually could be preserved from original sin. Now, it takes the sons of St. Francis to come to the rescue. So there's two figures in particular, William of Ware and Blessed John Duns Scotus. So William of Ware says that Mary is in Mary's redemption is what he calls a preventative redemption. That is, that she is saved from that which she necessarily would have contracted if not for the prevenient application of grace via the merit of Christ's passion. So William talks about how Mary is redeemed in a preventative status. In other words, that she would have obviously contracted original sin if God had not stepped in and provided her with a special grace. 
Scotus, for his part, distinguishes something here. He he says there's a difference between what we would call a repairing grace and a preserving grace. So, for example, you know, there's you know, we grace is given to repair something that is broken or wounded, and grace is given to preserve something from happening. If my son, for example, would you know probably wouldn't happen anymore right but when he was younger if he if he managed to sprint towards the gap between the between the railing and the train tracks for instance let's say we're going on a trip and he he ends up sprinting towards the gap as a train's pulling up to the station and i reach out and snatch him up as his foot hovers over the edge have i saved him or not no technically he was never in danger since he never leapt over into the train tracks. But I think common sense would say, well, then yes, of course I saved him. But it was not, I didn't save him by repairing him after he was wounded. I preserved him from being wounded. So Duns Scotus uses this kind of example to say that Mary is in fact redeemed, just not in the same way as the rest of us. So he would say that the rest of us receive reparative grace to save us from original sin, and that's what we get in baptism. Whereas Our Lady would receive a preservative grace to, you know, save her from original sin to begin with. Now, a question might arise. You might say, well, okay, if that's the case, then is is Mary truly a daughter of Adam and united with us in the same human race if she she doesn't inherit the same thing that all the rest of us do, right? Can she properly be called a daughter of Adam and belong to the same human lineage. So one thing we have to remember is that human nature is prior to the deprivation of justice, as much as it is prior to the application of the grace of justice, right? We have to remember that fallen human nature is not the default. It is now by accident, right? Because that's just what we get, but it wasn't so from the beginning. And human nature doesn't imply sin. Now, it also doesn't imply grace, and we'll get to that in a moment, but it doesn't imply sin. So human nature is before and prior to sin. So just because someone doesn't inherit sin doesn't mean that they don't have a human nature. And secondly, justice or the lack of justice is not intrinsic to the concept of nature in itself. Now, there's a logical priority, of course, but it's it's a real one nonetheless. So Mary's redemption, if anything, owes even more to the merits of Christ's passion as it's a more perfect redemption. If anything, you could say that Mary's redemption is the most perfect redemption and the rest of us kind of have a secondarily perfect redemption. Duns Scotus says this, he says, if Christ is a perfect redeemer, it seems fitting that he should have saved at least a single person from contracting original sin. So the grace of justification that we receive in baptism, for instance, saves us from original sin, but it, it's, a, it's a repairing grace. This redemption that Mary receives is a preventative grace is would technically seem to be even more perfect. So this would seem to increase the beauty of Christ's redeeming work in a way as it proposes that Christ's redemption is applied in two separate modes and not just one. Now, Mary's gift of original justice would, of course, be distinct 
from that of Adam and Eve. It didn't come about through the natural conception as it would have done with Adam and Eve if they had remained in grace. So if, if Adam and Eve had never sinned, their children would have been born with original justice too, right? They would have been born in grace as well. And so it's a supernatural act for this soul, this soul of Our Lady, to be graced with original justice from the moment of its existence. So it's certainly nothing that is in her nature, right, or owed to her injustice. We have to remember that even this grace that's given from the very beginning is a grace. The Council of Basel in the 15th century, though admittedly not an ecumenical council, like many of the, you know, the two dozen or so great ecumenical councils that we've had throughout history, the Council of Basel defines the truth of this reality by calling it a special effect of divine preventing and operating grace. Now, unfortunately, uh, this, this definition ends up being invalid due to the schismatic nature of the council. Um, but we shouldn't let, let that deter us from simply recognizing that this is something that's in the air, it's in the water. And so it's clearly an early attempt at giving us a dogmatic definition of this concept literally half a millennium right before it actually is dogmatically defined eventually if we go back to some objections for instance because this has typically been a little bit of a you know tete between the dominicans and the franciscans the dominicans object and they, they seem to have three different objections where they want to sort of question this idea and they say okay the first you know is is scotus's solution really all that airtight right they say well just because something could be doesn't necessitate that it has to be, right? So just because God could do this doesn't mean that he would have to or that it would sort of have to be the case. So that's the first objection. Second, um, well, Thomas Aquinas objected, or he had a few issues or questions. And, you know, that's usually reason enough to give us pause, right? So if St. Thomas doesn't agree with something, it should at least allow us to pause and take a breath and say, okay, well, does Thomas have a point, right? He usually does. And third and finally, most importantly, they say, well, are the sources of the church's liturgy and the census fidelium to be counted as more weighty than what we would determine is the literal sense of scripture and the consensus of the church fathers? So it seems like what the Dominicans want to do is say, well, if there's kind of these these four different places we could look to look for doctrine, they say, okay, there's four places, right? The, The liturgy, which always in the church comes first. The scriptures, the church fathers, and the sense of the faithful, right? If these these four different sources, you can seem to put two on one side and two on the other, right? Two for this doctrine and two against. So it seemed to most Dominican theologians that these two sides were at odds with one another in their conclusions. Fortunately, we have one of the most famous Dominicans, uh, Cardinal uh, Cajetan in the 16th century, to come to our rescue. So how does he solve this issue? He says, he says, redemption still needs to be, in some sense, redemption from something. And so contrary to the Franciscan thesis that doesn't really, you know, doesn't focus on this aspect of redeeming from something, Cajetan says, no, redemption does require the person to be redeemed actually from something. They have to be saved from something. Uh, and so he says, okay, well, what is Mary redeemed from then if she never contracts original sin? Cajetan says Mary is redeemed from what he calls non-orderedness to grace. So Mary is redeemed from non-orderedness to grace. And what does that mean? Recall 
that nature and grace are two different things, right? So our human nature is one thing and the grace that we receive is another. Our human nature in itself per se is not owed grace. It's kind of Paul's whole point in the letter to the Romans, right? And so even though she's conceived without the stain of sin, she would still be in debt as regards the supernatural ordering of the human person to grace. So we can think about human nature in four different states, really. We can think about human nature first in a fallen state. We can think about human nature second in a state of grace. We can think about human nature third in a state of glory. And fourth, which is what Cardinal Cajetan is reminding us, there could be a case now, not in this order anywhere, but there could be a case of pure human nature. So a, a, a human nature that has no sin, but also hasn't been given grace yet. And so what Cajetan says is this, this is what Mary is redeemed from. Mary is redeemed from being a creature of pure nature. So in that case, she still would not have grace. And in that sense, would not be capable of being glorified and being made a partaker of the divine nature, as we read in the second Peter. So in this case, Mary is redeemed from this state of having no grace. Now, Mary is not conceived into the state of sort of Edenic paradise, right? Uh, Eve is brought into existence in grace without a debt. So Eve is brought into existence in one way. Mary, however, is brought into existence in grace with her debts already paid off. That's kind of the distinction that we want to talk about here. So the formal reason for the Immaculate Conception is Mary's predestination to the divine motherhood. So Our Lady, the Blessed Virgin Mary, is the only redeemed person who is per se necessary in salvation history. So if Christ is necessary, which I think we want to affirm, then the incarnation, obviously, is necessary. And by extension, his mother would be necessary. So we know that this is the order for which the Immaculate Conception is given. So uh, thanks for showing up again this week. Next week, our very last Mariological tutorial before we get to Lent, and we start our Lenten Book Club, uh, we will just cover all the remaining stuff, right? So we'll cover a kind of a miscellanea of various other questions and curiosities related to this doctrine. So, So thanks again. Hope you enjoyed it. I'll see you back here next week.